0: This podcast is developed by Bridge Bio to educate ourselves and the public about living with a rare disease. Since our guests aren't scripted and are free to speak their minds, their views and opinions don't necessarily reflect the views and policy of Bridge Biopharma. Now,
1: we hope you enjoy the podcast.
2: Welcome to On Rare, a rare disease podcast produced by Bridge Bio, a biotech company that focuses on the treatment of rare diseases. We explore what it's really like to live with a rare disease, from getting the diagnosis to all of the challenges from day to day. Life with a rare disease is really unique, and behind each unique condition is a unique person. On Rare gives us all the chance to listen and learn from these true experts, people living with rare conditions. I'm your host, Mandy Roary, a member of the patient advocacy team at Bridge Bio, and I'm joined by my colleague, David Rintel. Today, David visits with Chandra, a young woman living with a rare cancer of the bile ducts, cholangiocarcinoma. David?
1: Hi, Mandy. Good to see you today. It'll be my pleasure to introduce Chandra. Cholangiocarcinoma is a really challenging condition, and I think it's wonderful for us all to learn more about it. Before we speak to Chandra, I'm very pleased to welcome a colleague and friend, Dr. Carl Damkowski, the Chief Medical Officer of QED Therapeutics, the Bridge Bio affiliate that has been developing a medicine for cholangiocarcinoma. Uh, Hi, Carl. Thank you for joining us today.
0: Hi, David. Great to be here.
1: Thank you. And Carl, we're going to count on you to explain a, a pretty complicated illness to us. What is cholangiocarcinoma? How does someone develop it? And what happens when they do?
0: Yeah, thanks for the question. So cholangiocarcinoma is a rare cancer of the bile ducts of the liver. The liver is a really important organ for a lot of things, including metabolizing, various things uh, throughout your system, and that just means breaking them down into components that can be used all over your body. Um, and one of the things it also produces is bile, which goes into your digestive tract um, to help break things down as well. So this is specifically a cancer of the bile ducts of the liver. So there's other cancers that affect the the major part of the organ, but it makes it a little difficult to diagnose this often because the bile ducts are a complicated, drainage system throughout the liver and in very small and intricate parts. So these often start very deep in the liver and they're difficult to detect early on. I say that and as an important component because unfortunately, uh, many people who are diagnosed with cholangiocarcinoma don't find out until the cancer has progressed um, quite a lot.
1: But- It's interesting, but must be really difficult to identify
0: where the cancer is. It looks like it's in the liver, but it could be actually in the bile ducts. Correct. So it's not a cancer that has obvious symptoms right off the bat often. And so they can grow and invade other parts of the organ before people know about it. And then secondly, like you said, David, It's difficult to distinguish it from other cancers because it can be within these bile ducts, but when it shows up on something like a CT scan, um, it could be a lot of things, which makes it hard to determine what to do with it right off the bat.
1: Thank you, and I'm going to guess that the way that the bile ducts are kind of integrated into the liver has an impact on the ability to do surgery for this type of cancer as compared to other cancers.
0: Yeah, and also the advanced stage that most of these patients um, are diagnosed at makes it difficult. Once it's invaded other parts of the organ, it becomes more difficult to have a surgical resection, which just means a surgery to cut out the malignant tissue and remove that. Depending on the hospital and the age of diagnosis, only about a quarter to a third of patients are actually candidates for surgical resection. Mm -hmm. So it's quite a low uh, number the surgery itself too, um, just to add a little more color around that, is a quite difficult procedure because the where the bile ducts come in contact with other organs is a very complicated area of anatomy because some of the intestines and there's major arteries and veins which are transporting blood close by. The pancreas and other important organ is is very close by too, so it's a very difficult surgery. You know,
1: this is a... Really, really challenging illness, a really difficult cancer. One last question about surgery. Uh, Sometimes people will get chemotherapy in hopes of getting to a point where surgery might be possible. Is that correct?
0: Yeah. Uh, In some cases, not all cases chemotherapy shrinks the, the size of the cancer. When you reduce that size, patients can go from not being surgical candidates to being surgical candidates if the tumor size and shape is reduced in such a way that makes it more accessible to surgery.
1: So, Carl, I know that um, there have been some advances in cancer treatment and genetic testing is done on the tumors themselves. And I wonder if you could say a few words about how is that advanced treatment for glioblastoma?
0: Yeah, of course. So, one of the you know newer things in terms of cancer treatment is when patients are diagnosed, they take the, the cancer mm-hmm. tissue and they test all the changes from uh, the normal DNA that they see in it. This has really changed the landscape of how we treat many cancer types, um, and cholangiocarcinoma is one of them, to get a treatment that's targeted specifically at their genetics. Something through research that we've found out is that FGFR2 fusions is a specific change in the DNA that can cause a cholangiocarcinoma. Uh, These changes make signaling go through, and that signaling makes the cells grow faster and divide faster. And really all a cancer is at the end of the day is a really fast dividing cell that has no regulation on it. So this FGFR2 fusion can cause that to happen. The exciting thing, and nothing's exciting I should say about cholangiocarcinoma, but one of the positives having FGFR2 fusion found is there's multiple treatments right now that are approved by the FDA. Um, It's a really exciting area of, of drug development to help potentially give them really effective treatments for their cancers. Uh,
1: One last question, uh, and I think it's important for all of us to know, cholangiocarcinoma is a really serious condition. It's very difficult to treat. What is expected when someone is diagnosed with cholangiocarcinoma?
0: On the whole, on average, and there's patients that unfortunately have uh, shorter than this and patients that have longer than this, but they're uh, average survival time is somewhere between one and two years after diagnosis, and it depends a little on uh, how early they're diagnosed, how big their tumor is, how much it's invaded surrounding tissue, but somewhere between one and two years after diagnosis. So it's an especially devastating disease with, with limited treatment options. I mentioned some of the more uh, advanced and, and novel ones that have recently been approved by the FDA. Um, But there's still a lot um, to be done in cholangiocarcinoma to really improve outcomes for patients overall.
1: Well, thank you very much, uh, Carl. On that somber note, we're grateful for you to explain this to us and really looking forward to hearing Chandra's experience.
0: Yeah, same. Thanks for having me and, and looking forward to hearing from Chandra as well.
1: And now I'm really happy to welcome Chandra to our podcast. Chandra, thanks so much for joining us today.
3: Thank you for having
1: me, David. I think before we start talking about your experience with cholangiocarcinoma, perhaps you could just tell us about yourself.
3: Okay, well, I was born and raised in Chicago, um, left Chicago for college, um, got a master's degree in public health, i have been working in the public health field for almost 10 years now. And it was probably a couple years after finishing grad school that I, I learned of cholangiocarcinoma. And so... Prior to my diagnosis, you know, I was a 20-something living the dream, had my little puppy with me working my, you know, first real grown-up job and, you know, just loving all the things that came along with being a carefree 20-something.
1: That sounds good. And you've, ac- you've accomplished a lot getting um, your MPH and starting your career. That sounds mm-hmm. great. And just as a point of reference, I know it's never comfortable asking anyone their age, but
3: I'm 35 years old.
1: Thanks, Georgia. Yes. So what did you first notice, thinking back, you know, I think people would call it a symptom or a change that may have been connected to cholangiocarcinoma?
3: David, that's the thing. There is nothing prior to my diagnosis that suggested anything was wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, My diagnosis came just after, you know, a routine checkup with my primary care physician, which I did every year. She took labs as normal. Um, Everything physically was fine, but then some labs came back out of whack. So she ran the labs about three more times over the course of a month. And each time those labs were elevated more, and that sort of showed some issues with my liver. Mm -hmm. She then ordered um, an ultrasound of my liver and that sort of led me to cholangiocarcinoma.
1: Well, so you're in your later 20s, you're feeling fine. Your primary care physician draws blood like they always do. You're not experiencing any symptoms or any changes. And here you find out that some of the blood tests relating to your liver are abnormal. Mm -hmm. They pursue it further. And then You said an ultrasound of your liver, the blood tests and the ultrasound that they could tell that you had cholangiocarcinoma, or did they do more kind of tests?
3: They did more tests after that. The ultrasound showed a mass in the liver. And mm. my primary care doctor, she was like, well, I mean, it could be a lot of things. You're a healthy 29-year-old. It could just be, you know, a benign growth. And so that's sort of what I rested on. It was probably benign. It was nothing. And then they did a biopsy following that. And and it turns out that it was cholangiocarcinoma. So there I was, 29 years old, <laughs> sitting in the oncologist's office, you know,
1: mm.
3: getting my life changed. Wow.
1: That is, uh, it's shocking even to hear about such a radical change in a young person's life, which came out of the blue without any warning sign. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah, it definitely felt out of the blue, especially because I was the type of person that never really got sick. I never, you know, got the flu, I had seasonal allergies, but, you know, that was it, so it really felt shocking and, and disrupted my world completely. And so, of course, after that, you know, all the the appointments and the follow-ups and the tests and the biopsies, you know, that all came after that. Had
1: you ever heard the word cholangiocarcinoma before? And how did they explain it to you? Oh,
3: never. I, I think I had him repeat it multiple times and write it down for me, you know, just Because I'd never heard of it before. Um, You sort of hear, you know, the other sort of cancers that women get, breast cancer, cervical cancer, all of those things I'd heard of, but never cholangiocarcinoma and let alone bowel duct cancer. And I was like, I I majored in biology and I found myself asking, where are the bowel ducts? What What do they do? So he explained that to me, what the bile ducts were and how they connected mm. to the liver and how those cancer cells moved mm. from my bile ducts into the liver where that tumor then grew.
1: Yeah, it's, um, I'm just imagining you sitting there and getting that explained to you. And, you know, we don't think about our bile ducts when they're working correctly and when there's no, no illness involved, right? We, they just do their business and we don't even think about them. So what did the oncologist say you should expect?
3: The first thing that they did was a PET scan to determine like the size of the tumor. And apparently it was very large. I think the first step was to have them surgically remove it. But because of its size, um, it couldn't be surgically removed. And so that was sort of Mm -hmm. like the first blow, like, oh, we can't just cut this thing out. They said, well, let's try the standard chemo protocol to see if it shrinks the tumor enough to at least surgically remove it. And so I had gone down to see a surgeon who had done um, some cholangiocarcinoma liver resections and, and he wasn't optimistic that it would shrink enough to remove it. And so, you know, that's sort of blow number two for me. I have the type of personality, if there's a a problem in front of me, let's find the solution to it. I think the doctor, the oncologist sort of expected me to have this like really dramatic and and long breakdown um, in his office after being told all of this news. But it's like, okay, what what's the chemo protocol look like? What when does that begin? You know, just ready to step into this battle because the sooner I can start it, Mm -hmm. the sooner it can end. Right. That's that was my thought. Mm -hmm. And Mm so I was diagnosed in 2016 and at that time there weren't a lot of protocols for cholangiocarcinoma. They sort of went with the standard treatment. I did that for, mm, yeah. I, I think I uh-huh. lost count, maybe a year of that mm-hmm. treatment. Finally, the scan mm-hmm. showed that the tumor had shrunk enough. I was a candidate for surgery for a liver resection.
1: So um, you did the chemotherapy for a year. I guess I'd like to ask what that was like.
3: Um, yeah, you know the first couple treatments were fine. I mean, there was there was so much all the pre meds. That was the first thing. Like I'd never taken so much or been given so much Benadryl <laughs> <laughs> in my life. Um, and it it was interesting how all these pre meds would help you feel okay during and and immediately after chemo. And I remember not ever leaving my job. I didn't take a leave of absence. I was still working full time the whole time. I I made my appointments on Friday afternoons. So I'd, you know, take a half day at work and and then go sit for, you know, four or six hours of, of chemo. At that time, I was living downstate Illinois and my parents and family were all in Chicago. But every week, one of my family members made that drive down to sit with me. Mm -hmm. I've had a great support system throughout this whole thing. And I think that that has definitely helped me get through those tough days. For the most part, living day to day on chemo was a roller coaster. There were definitely good days where I felt hundred percent fine and then there are days where the fatigue was so draining and you know I sort of you know had those nauseating side effects and that sort of thing but never did I let it keep me from doing what I wanted to do I'm a go 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 type person but it did force me to slow down not mm-hmm. very much but some uh, it sort of gave me this attitude of take up every opportunity that I can while I can. And I still live like that now.
1: There is nothing like the support of your family to help you get through a difficult period. It sounds like at least towards the end, it started to limit you more than in the beginning. Not not something easy to do.
3: Correct. It. it... <laughs> There are days I didn't go out as much. I've always been an avid traveler. I, you know, would always desire to hop on a flight and go somewhere. But, you know, if you're getting chemo every week, that sort of <laughs> limits you too. your weekends are no longer your own. But at the same time, I want to emphasize that it it also didn't stop me either. Shortly after I'd started, you know, the treatment process, I got a new job, a promotion really um, changed cities. Again, I didn't let cancer stop my career advancement either.
1: Wow. You switched jobs in the midst of your weekly chemo.
3: (laughs) Yes. I'm
1: impressed. Uh, That is just a real accomplishment, Chandra.
3: It took me a long time to make that decision? Because do cancer patients change doctors and, and change where they started their treatment in the middle of treatment? It was just smaller decisions within this bigger decision I'd have to make. Will my next supervisor, my next company that I work for, be this accepting and flexible with my schedule. Mm-hmm. But I yeah. I sort of moved on faith and went to that next role and, and was successful in that. And, you know, they were just as understanding I worked a four-day work week in that job, so I would have Fridays completely off because what I didn't do was change doctors. I moved two hours away, but I drove back Mm -hmm. on Mm -hmm. those Fridays to continue to see my original doctor because I don't don't know about you, but once you find a good doctor who Mm -hmm. knows your case and has that compassion and empathy and motivation that matches yours, Uh you don't want to lose that doctor.
1: Yeah, I'm definitely with you there, Chandra. And actually, as you're talking about changing your job, I thought, oh well, what about the healthcare providers? And here you had the plan to do the chemo to try to shrink the tumor to allow for surgery. And if you went to a new doctor, maybe that plan would not have continued or there would have been a different view. So but I also have to comment is you said you didn't let it stop you and wow, you didn't let it stop you. In the midst of a year of chemotherapy, you you got a promotion and you took it and moved to a new city. I mean, that would be a lot for anyone without dealing with chemotherapy and cancer, let me say. So that is something.
3: And David, you're impressed by that one thing. Let me continue my story, <laughs> <laughs> not to brag or anything, but that was just the first of a couple more moves, actually. I have been lucky and, and grateful that every job, every position has been flexible and working with me. When I moved to that city, I stayed there for a couple years and I'd found a partner too, who also lived in a different city, which made me look for a new job so that we didn't have this long distance relationship anymore. When that second move came, I did have to let that original doctor go because then the, the drive increased I think to maybe three and a half or four hours. And so I was like, eh, not that every Friday and, <laughs> um, But prior to even me moving, I had had the liver resection and recovered from that. The tumor was gone, but they wanted me to have more chemo just in case there were any lingering um, cancer cells in the body. And so I was on that for six months. And then after that, there was no evidence of disease in my body. And I was like, yes, I just beat cholangiocarcinoma. I thought it was over. And it had only been a year and a half after that. And so I continued to live my life. Like I said, I I met someone and, you know, we started Mm. dating and I was like, yes, life is back on track,
1: Mm. but life
3: has a way of surprising you and throwing you more curveballs, And so I continued to do my regular scans and checkups. Um, Then they noticed that there was a a spot in my lungs and they Mm. were like, "Mm, What could it be? It could be cancer. You know, we'll just watch it and wait and see. I didn't necessarily let that live in my present. I sort of put that in the back of my mind. I was like, well, the doctor is just going to sort of wait and see. Like, I don't want to start worrying myself about it right now. I'll just keep living and, you know keep doing what I need to do you
1: were cancer free for about a year and a half and you were moving forward in your life you didn't let cancer stop you and you found a new partner you moved to a new city you got a new medical team and then there's a spot on your lung when they do a scan what happened then
3: then the next time there were more spots big enough to do a biopsy of the lung nodule. And and it turns out it was mm-hmm. histoplasmosis. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, mm-hmm. but uh, they were like, this is really a rare thing to have. And actually when I had my liver resection, they had found histoplasmosis in my liver. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, did the antifungals mm-hmm. on that. And then, you know, that spot in my lung, they were like, oh, it's histoplasmosis again. And I was like, again, you know, mm-hmm. so they mm-hmm. treated that and we thought we were done, but mm-hmm. more spots appeared next time. And and I was like, mm-hmm. are you sure just isn't histoplasmosis? And they're like, no, because some of the spots did disappear that we were looking at before comparing imaging. Biopsies on the lungs are really tough. Right. I don't know if you've ever had one or heard of anyone else having one Um, but when they went in for a second biopsy that was really tough because they were small but they wanted to know for sure and I wanted to know for sure so I was like let's let's just do it and they got a tissue sample they did say that it was cholangiocarcinoma during that my lung
1: collapsed oh goodness
3: Yeah. So, I mean, that was painful, (laughs) um, but you know, healed from Mm -hmm. that. And then, um, I'm in this new city, I'm in this new role. Um, I've got my partner by my side Mm -hmm. this time. And he sat with me as I started the new regimen of chemo. Um, but we learned very quickly that the chemo that I was taking was not effective. It was like I was poisoning myself for no good effects. So that was when went down to St. Louis, to Barnes-Jewish, mm-hmm. um, to their cancer right. center to get some more specialized treatment. I think I tried two different clinical trials. Um, and again, mm-hmm. driving to St. Mm-hmm. Louis, that, that was a journey. That was three-hour drive from where I lived in Illinois. So again, Still working full time, still living my life, but just also kept up with with my treatments and and stuff too. And one of the clinical trials, the last one I had there was probably the roughest thing I've ever experienced. Um, The side effects were insane. Like, if I knew now what I knew then, I probably would say no thank you to that trial. Mm-hmm. There were there were days and days in the hospital on that trial. And so, when you're fighting cancer, you are willing to try any and everything.
1: So, you're doing really well. You're cancer-free for a year and a half. They see some spots on your lungs. Um, they do the biopsy. It's something else. It's not cancer, which they treat. And then some of the spots go away, but others are still coming and they do another biopsy and that's the one that collapses your lung. And also you find out that you have return of flangiocarcinoma and that sends you on a path to two clinical trials. And it sounds like those were not easy and more difficult than, than the, the first chemotherapy that you were on. Yes. Well, I hope, I hope you got some benefit out of that treatment after all of that
3: what's what's benefit? I still failed out of the trial because there was still growth, despite all of that. But having that science mind, I'm going to volunteer for a clinical trial regardless because mm-hmm. I understand the importance of trying things to see if they work.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So
3: even though I say I would pass on that if I had to go back, but I still understand the importance of having volunteered for that clinical trial.
1: Yeah. So- after that second clinical trial, uh, what happened? It sounds like it wasn't helpful and you were out of the trial. So what did you do then?
3: So then there was a drug that was had become FDA approved. And before I found out mm-hmm. the FDA drug was approved, we did genetic testing of my tumor to figure out what are like biomarkers or or something like that, and and I was able to find out that I had the FGFR2 gene mutation, um, which uh-huh. apparently. That's good because there were a lot of treatments in the works for that specific mutation. Yeah. So
1: just to make sure I understand that they hadn't done genetic testing of your of any of the tissue up until that point.
3: I don't think so. I think I got the test with my doctor at Barnes. Yeah. And, I, and I just think that testing and treatment had come a ways in those three years that uh-huh. it was something, some information that needed to be known at that point.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So they did the genetic testing and it was discovered that you had the FGFR2 mutation, that's fibroblast growth factor receptor mutation, and that enabled you to go on a drug that was specifically targeting that type of mutation. Do I have that right?
3: Yes. And so I was, I was like, okay, great. Like this is specific for this mutation. It's gotta work. It's going to work. Um, I had hope again, I was excited. And so I started that I had some great decreases in the number of nodules in my lungs. And so we thought, okay, great, this is it. This is going to be our thing. And so I, I continued on that drug for, Oh man. Um, probably a year. And then during that time, during that year, the doctor I was seeing at Barnes, she left that hospital for another institution across the country. And I was like, wow, I've got to change doctors again. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But But at at that time, I sort of found my way to the Cholangiocarcinoma Foundation and a whole, you know, birth of resources opened up for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and once I found that that doctor was leaving, I was like, okay, I tapped into this network and I said, what doctor near me has um, knowledge with cholangiocarcinoma? Where can, who can I see? And I found a doctor in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, this is perfect. How convenient. My family's in Chicago. Yeah. Any, you know, treatments or tests or anything I need to do. Like, mm-hmm. it's also an excuse to see my family, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, again, I, I was on that drug for about a year and I transferred care to Chicago and, and things were going along well. And then after probably the first nine months on the drug, the scan started to look the same. Like there was no no change, mm. no increase, no decrease. So they call it stable. Mm-hmm. And and they, mm-hmm. wanted, they said, stable is good, Chandra, stable is good. And I said, oh, okay. I mean, I wanted to see shrinkage. Who wants stable? I'm ready to be over this. So I, I kept going on the drug and, you know, as more treatments and more trials were opening up for this FGFR2 mutation, they said, okay, let's, try something different to see if we can get these lung nodules to shrink. And so essentially mm-hmm. that's that's where I am now. I've just mm-hmm. completed my third cycle of this clinical trial drug. That's, that's where I am now.
1: <laughs> Let's see. I just want to make sure I understand. So it sounds like the drugs that targeted the FGFR2 mutation helped to keep your cancer stable, but you were looking better than that so that as more drugs that target fgfr to mutations become available then it's a possibility of trying one of the newer ones
3: correct correct and so of course as my whole cancel world was spinning you know i had other balls in the air um i i again continued to work got Another promotion and started with a new company just this past November. And it's a much bigger job, a much bigger responsibility. But again, I, I can see myself sitting on the sidelines just just only thinking about the cancer. Um, and so I, I started nice. a new job. I ran for office. <laughs> oh
1: wow.
3: <laughs> I ran for office and won and am seated on my city's city council.
1: Congratulations. That's Fabulous.
3: Thank you. I sit on a board of directors for a nonprofit that's statewide. When I say I am grabbing every opportunity, David, that is what I'm doing. If I want to do it, I'm gonna go after it. I think the whole moral of my story that no cancer patient looks the same, and you don't have to let cancer halt your life. Yeah. Work work around it. Work yeah. work with it.
1: Yeah, I keep thinking of what you said very early early on, which is I wasn't going to let cancer stop me, but I want to amend that, Chandra, to say you don't let anything stop you, is <laughs> that you've been moving ahead with your life, full steam ahead, um, at a rate faster than most of us do, cancer or no cancer. <laughs> so that's really impressive. And, you know, each of those changes, each transition, is those are all challenging. And you ran for office and won.
3: Yes, Yes. I'm lucky
1: that we we're able to get some time with you because you must be like really busy and uh maybe I should be calling you counselor
3: <laughs> I am not that formal i Chandra <laughs> is is just fine it's just fine but it's it, it has been a wild ride and I don't see it stopping anytime soon i
1: wow. yeah so during this conversation you've mentioned a number of things and people who've helped and supported you in this process, your family who would come down every week to sit with you while you had chemotherapy, your partner who then would sit with you when you had chemotherapy and support you. You mentioned the Chalangiocarcinoma Foundation to connect with other people and also to help you find the right healthcare team. You were very fortunate to have this level of support. What role that support played in not letting cancer stop you and you're moving forward in your life?
3: I think that knowing I had the support and the encouragement um, gave me the confidence and the drive to not let cancer or any of the side effects stand in my way because there were people rooting for me. There were people to sort of catch me if I did make a move and it didn't work out. And I understand not everyone has that. I try to be a support to every cholangiocarcinoma patient I encounter online. This has become sort of like my second family. I have become friends with, we call ourselves warriors. I have become friends with warriors all over the country. We follow each other's journeys. We support each other and they can come to this group and ask, I'm thinking about this. How did it work for you? What were the side effects? What can I anticipate? And I did that same thing. The trial that I'm on, you know, started some time ago. So I was able to ask, you know, what am I in for? Mm. It has been really helpful and such a true blessing to find there are other people out there living with it too. Even though this is a rare cancer,
1: You have been fortunate to have support. You also have been fortunate to have something inside that keeps moving you forward. I think we get a lot from other people, but I think it also matters what we do ourselves. It's the support that we receive and our own drive and purpose. You've been very fortunate to have both, really. You were not going to take cholangiocarcinoma cancer lying down. You were going to take it not only standing up, but Sounds like taking it, standing up, running, (laughs) jogging, racing (laughs) to live your life without it stopping you. And that you also have become a support to others to help answer questions when uh, people are diagnosed or when they're trying to figure out what choices to make with regard to treatment. I'm sure that's enormously helpful to people. Before you started talking about the warriors, I wondered what you would say to someone who contacted you today who had just been diagnosed with glandular carcinoma?
3: First, I would tell them, do not give up hope. Even in the darkest moment, hold on to like even that pea size hope because when I was first diagnosed, I did the Googling and it said five years. I made five years this year and I'm still going Mm -hmm. strong. Every day, every week, every month, there are advancements and treatments and Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. holding on to hope you you can outlive whatever statistics or whatever bad news that a doctor could give you that would be the first thing i would say is hold on to hope and don't let this overwhelm you like it can definitely be overwhelming especially in those that first month when you're being hit with all sorts of information mm-hmm take it one day at a time, you know, ask your questions, tell your medical team to take a pause, take a breath and let you digest some things, ask your questions. And I think that that's something I've had to learn too, to sort of advocate for myself, like because we go Mm -hmm. to the doctor and we're used to them telling us what to do, but essentially it's, it's their opinion that this is what we should do. And this is the best path that they think, but I would also encourage people to sort of ask questions, why? Why is this better than this? And do your own research too. I mean, this is your life. You're in the driver's seat.
1: Good advice. It's really hard in the beginning. You all of a sudden enter another world, a world of doctors, chemo, scans, tests, biopsies. It feels really overwhelming, but your experience has been that there is hope. There is a lot to manage, but it's possible to manage. I think you've also added to your team, in addition to the doctors, your family, your partner. I want to also mention your employers who've made yes. who made room for in your schedule for you to get chemo. You know, you mentioned that earlier as well that you could find help and support from expected and unexpected quarters.
3: Absolutely. I, I always thought I had to. It was something that I sort of had to hide from my employer. Just something that I. I didn't think that I could share with an employer, but employers are changing. Empathy is growing um, in the workplace. Mm-hmm. People are living longer and living better with cancer. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you you would be surprised how many people in a, in a work site could be battling cancer. Mm-hmm. Sort of goes back to that. You never know what someone's going through.
1: So I have to ask you, you were told to expect that you had five years to live over mm-hmm. five years ago. And you're incredibly positive, you're productive, you've taken on new challenges and work. It's got to be on your mind that there's also a pretty big risk living with cholangiocarcinoma. And I wonder how you think about that.
3: I do think about it. Oh, and I'm hopeful, but don't get me wrong. I do have my days where I'm just, <laughs> you know, the the down days, the days where... I look at an opportunity and say, I have, I have to do this. I have to take it. And my partner's like, why now? And I have that mindset. Maybe I won't get another chance at this because I do have cancer. And so I do have those thoughts. I do have those days where I'm thinking, you know, I feel good today. But what about in six months or a year? What, what does that look like? What does my future look like? but I try not to, to dwell there very long. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when I do have those sort of, I call them dark thoughts, um, that's the time I sort of reach out to my, my support system. My sister is my best friend and she can handle when I am spiraling like that, Mm -hmm. she can handle it better than say like my parents can. And so she, she is the person I go to and she's able to make Mm -hmm. sense of the thought in the moment, but then sort of help me get past it at the same time.
1: It sounds like most of the time you're living your life, working city council, you're in relationships, you're active in the Clangiocarcinoma Foundation, but that there is this thing which is you know you have cancer and that there's worry and that takes a certain amount of energy just to manage the worry about what the future will bring, even though the worry is probably not helpful, but it is human. And with all of that, you're still moving ahead with your life and I think if I hadn't asked you, you wouldn't have said anything
3: that's probably (laughs) true. Um, The first oncologist that I had, he said to me, don't worry twice. Don't worry for something that may not happen in the future. Don't worry right now and then have to worry about it later. So I remember that every time that I start to worry. And so that sort of brings me back. I'm not going to worry about something that may not even happen.
1: Yeah. Worry has to be managed. And that was good advice. Mm-hmm. Don't worry twice. I'll I'll have to try that myself. I tend to be a worrier and I can say, oh no, I worried about that back in, in <laughs> 2017. So I'm not going to worry about it again. But it is something I'm sure on your mind and on the minds of those who love you. And now it's on my mind. Mm-hmm. And But I'll be rooting for you and be very hopeful for you that you will continue to move forward in your life.
3: Thank you, David.
1: Well, thank you so much for Joining us, this is, I just have to say, I learned so much from talking to you and feel really inspired by our conversation today.
3: Well, good. I I like to share my story to give others hope, to share that hope and make others feel inspired that life has its downs, but it can also be so great. It can be so great.
1: I want to be able to vote for you. <laughs> so I'm going to change my registration. <laughs>
3: yeah they uh, i have i have people here that are like okay so now you're in city council what's what's next they like i just got seated last year yeah. <laughs> and so they're like oh congressional seat is open what do you think uh-huh. about that and i'm like can i get through the 4 years of council first
2: Great. Well, I'll be on your
1: campaign committee when you run for Congress, okay?
2: David, Chandra's story is truly remarkable. She's an incredible woman with a life full of hurdles, but somehow she had a lot of authority, information, support, and, and some Midwestern grit. She continues to have this hope and she's so determined to continue her life the way she wants to live it.
1: Chandra is a great example of how a person can face the challenges of a life-threatening disease, but still move forward in her life with perseverance, with strength and with hope.
2: She is an example. Yeah.
1: And I'm reminded of a quote that now I don't remember who said it, but it goes, life is full of challenges and it's also full of overcoming them.
2: Thanks, David. A special thanks to Carl for helping us to understand cholangiocarcinoma. Thank you to Chandra for inspiring us all to do, to pursue, to live a life, seizing every opportunity. David's right. I'd probably vote for her too. If you want to learn more about cholangiocarcinoma, please check out the Cholangiocarcinoma Foundation. Special thanks to our producer, Amy Brooks, and thank you for listening to On Rare. If you like today's podcast, we'd appreciate your support by reviewing, rating, and most of all, subscribing. I'm Mandy Rorick. I hope you'll join us for our next conversation on Rare.